This is the current federal tax developments for the week of January the 29th, 2024. Current federal tax developments is brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. Dollars, and this week we're going to be looking at the developments that took place regarding the bill that passed out of the House Ways and Means Committee related to the proposal to have a set of extenders that is evenly divided between items that are being requested by the Democrats and those being requested by Republican members. And we'll talk a little bit about where that's at. Now, I was going to do this one last week, but unfortunately ended up with a COVID uh, positive test and uh, having some interesting runs going around doing various things and getting that all taken care of and getting rest and all that other fun stuff for the week. So anyway, I'm back now, pretty much uh, pretty much back together, uh, seeing how things will go. But after kind of a missing week, we're now doing some uh, additional catch up here. And actually, it's good as anything because turns out in the week, nothing really happened with this bill, nor was anything expected to. So it was a time we could sit back and watch. The bill in question is House Resolution 7024, the Tax Relief for American Families and Workers Act of 2024. Now, this was advanced by the House Ways and Means Committee on January the 19th of 2024. And basically, this bill was advanced out of the committee on a 40 to 3 vote, with uh, three Democrats voting no. Now, those three no votes were over the extent of the expansion of the child tax credit. The Democrats were insisting that it should go to a more in line with what was there with the ARPA uh, back in 2021. However, that doesn't seem likely to happen. And in any event, even on the vote, we're still looking at just 40 to 3, not a vote that suggests that there'll be mass Democrat defections on the bill. It may move to the floor of the House on this week, uh, maybe a little more likely next week uh, if it comes through. Now, if it gets delayed outside of that period, then we start getting to the real question about whether anybody cares anymore, you know, and are, is this going to go forward? But definitely there is movement here. This bill, if you're not aware, was one that was based on an agreement that was come to with Chairman Smith of the House Ways and Means Committee and Chairman Wyden of the uh, Senate Finance Committee. And so it's meant to essentially be a bipartisan uh, bill for the idea is what exactly can we get done? Not so much what is our perfect wish list of things to be done, because nobody's getting their wish list under this bill. That's pretty clear, nor should you really expect it, given divided control of the government. That's not something likely to happen. That said, there are still many challenges to passage of this bill. Even just to clear the House of Representatives, we have some issues. There is the thing that hung up the four bills that came out of the House Ways and Means Committee this summer. That is the fight over the state and local tax deduction. Now, this one will be a little more interesting this time because the bills this summer were by design meant to be passed with Republican-only votes. And since it was written in such a way to guarantee that no Democrat was going to vote for it, the fact that they then couldn't deliver you know, all the Republicans, you didn't need a whole lot of Republicans at that time, you need even fewer right now uh, to kick back and not be able to pass a bill with Republican-only votes in the House. That's just basically the structure of how things are right now. And so a group of Republicans from higher tax states that wanted to see either the salt cap eliminated 
or wanted to see it expanded dramatically, uh, they were essentially able to kill move forward on all four bills. And even it came down to when we got the election of the new speaker, uh, supposedly he had promised them he would not bring a bill to the floor that didn't have some sort of salt uh, relief, a tax bill to the floor, didn't have salt relief. Although reportedly he said he wouldn't bring a, a bill to the floor this year. Now that was back when he was elected. So 2024 is not the year he was elected in. So in theory, that may be gone. But the question will be, will the Democrats go ahead and insist on the salt changes being in there? Therefore, lining up with the Republicans who refuse to vote on anything that doesn't have this in it? Or will they allow this bill to go through without having that in it? The theory being that the answer may be this bill or nothing, and nothing may not be preferable. The other place we're going to see some pushback on this bill could very well come out of the Rules Committee. Uh, every bill going to the floor goes through the House Rules Committee, generally, unless you have some very special actions. The Rules Committee, in theory, just looks to see if it complies with the current rules and has any issues uh, of that sort of a more general basis. But it is a committee and things can get tied up in there or things can be changed in the committee. So we don't know. We know there are a few members of the committee who probably are not thrilled with the child tax credit provisions as they exist. Uh, we'll, and I'm not talking there on the Democrat side, this time the Republican side. And I expect that there might be a push to make those changes there as well. So again, this is one of those odd bills that if everybody starts tinkering with it because it's not perfect for them, then I think we start looking at the chance that this bill's going nowhere and we'll end up with the same result we got a year ago. That's not outside the realm of possibility. The selling point right now from both of the chairman is, look, if you're gonna pass anything you're going to have to basically not get the bill you want. The question is not whether this is the bill you absolutely want and you know would be your perfect bill. The question is, is this bill better than the alternative? And if your answer is yes, then you should vote for this bill and not be trying to change it to a perfect bill because perfect bill means no bill. That's probably correct at this point. If any, like we said, so a lot, lot less chance we could see this become law if we start seeing fight or we start seeing it being amended. And that's going to be true not only on the House floor, assuming Rules Committee doesn't amend it, but also when Senate Finance gets it. You know, there has been some, some rumblings that various senators would like to make various changes. Uh, you know, and my guess is they're going to have the same problem there. It's like all or nothing. If it goes back to the House and the Senate's changed it, then the House is going to want to reopen for their changes. And suddenly we're back in the mess we were last year. We're going to look at some of the key provisions of this law here, uh, primarily the compromise extenders and the final title that provided funding uh, for funding and a special 1099 change that we have in there. Okay, now the titles we aren't going to cover, and I'll just briefly talk about them here. One is called increasing global competitiveness. Now, this is really a U.S.-Taiwan double taxation relief provision that various proponents been trying to get through the Congress for the whole year. Uh, everybody kind of agrees with the basic concept, but they hadn't found a vehicle yet. So the idea is they're going to use this as their vehicle to get it through. Probably doesn't have a major effect on your clients unless you have clients who are subject to U.S. Taiwan double taxation. Then probably is a significant bill to follow. And, you know, I'll let you go look at that part of the bill. 
We also have some changes to disasters. This is the like the standard congressional looking back over the last two years and providing enhanced relief. Obviously, if a disaster was a federally declared disaster, it was still deductible, but you still face the 10% of AGI limitation. So this would retroactively go back to the last time we did this and cover any disasters in the interim through a disaster, as I recall the wording of this, 60 days after the enactment of the bill. There's also some additional provisions covering some specific disasters that you may want to look at there if you were in an area impacted by one of these. Uh, and finally, there is a provision that deals with low-income housing. We have some low-income housing provisions. Those are in there as well. So we're not going to cover those in detail. We do have a link on our copy of the slides on the website uh, to the actual discussion uh, that, that was involved in there. So you can obviously take a look at that, you know, see how things go. And just, you know, like I said, take a look there, maybe read up on those problems if you want to. Also go into the bill itself. We have a link to that as well there. So let's talk about the first title, which is entitled Tax Relief for Working Families. Now, the, this is a number of different sections, which is interesting because we're going to get to the ERC, where we take a whole bunch of different provisions and roll them all into one section of the act. In this case, we have like multiple sections of the act, all of which are really trying to accomplish one goal. So obviously this thing had different authors is what you're going to find out. Different people were pushing forth different concepts and different theories about how to write a bill is also in here. Now, the one thing to notice right off, this will not be the full, rest, full restoration, I'll get that out right, of the American Rescue Plan Act refundable child tax credit that the Democrats had been pushing for. The way this worked was there are three key provisions, uh, well, I guess technically four, three of them are extenders, that the Republicans had been pushing for that were business related. The cost of those to extend those through 25 was going to be far less than the cost of actually restoring the full ARPA refundable child tax credit all the way through 2025. So the compromise ended up being that what they would do is they would give the Republicans those three business provisions, which to be honest, uh, at least the research one is one that a number of Democrats wanted to see passed as well, which is why you know, it really is that the Democrats couldn't just hold out for, yeah, we need this all the way. There was a lot of pressure in various locations that are more blue-leaning uh, to fix this problem, especially with software development costs. So the compromise was we figured out the total cost of doing the things the Republicans wanted to do, which related to 174, uh, the 163J calculation for business interest and bonus depreciation, plus a minor change in Section 179 going forward. Uh, what's the cost of that? And then that gave them the dollar amount that could be spent on restoring portions of the ARPA refundable child tax credit. And obviously it turns out to be far less and that's why there are three votes against. Because it is, you know, not, not coming very near doing this. It'd be, it'd be like basically having the 174 deduction saying, well, we couldn't get full expensing, so, but, but we did get improved. You now can amortize it over four years. It's like, well, that's, yeah, that's better, but, you know, we'd like to have more. Yeah. So it's not going to get there. It's much less, you know, it's not going to be paid out during the year. 
It's not nearly as big in the refundable side as the other one was, uh, but it does liberalize things somewhat. And depending upon your situation, it could be quite a bit of liberalization. I should well focus on that. One of the key things it does is it starts, uh, there are various caps on the maximum refundable credit. But one of the key ones is, you know, a computation based on earned income. And basically it's limited to though, you know, it's just a single computation. And it doesn't matter if you have one qualifying child or if you have 12 qualifying children, you end up with the same maximum. Under this bill, we're going to change the calculation by taking that limitation for the refundable amount, that cap, and we're going to multiply that times the number of children. There'll be a number of child multiplier in there. So it will not be the same. Now, obviously, if you only have one child, that's not going to help much. There is a minor increase in the amount of the credit itself, so that, that's also part of there. That would help slightly for the one child. I think it's a $100 difference that they'll get. We will add an inflation, adjust, inflation adjustment to the credit for 2024 and 2025. So that's something coming up then. Again, so we would get the child tax credit for 23, this, this increased thing with this multiplier. And then for 24 and 25, there would be a refund, be an inflation adjustment involved in that. Also in 24 and 25, you can elect to use the prior year's earned income. So that's something also added that's not there for this year, but let's say you're 23, and by this year I mean 23, the one we're going to be filing here shortly. Uh, if your 23 earned income is less than your 22 earned income, you don't have the option to use 22. However, next year, if your 24 earned income, we're doing next year's returns, your 24 earned income is less than 23, then you can optionally elect to use the 23 earned income to make the calculation for this child tax credit. Okay, and that will also be true in 25 and 25. You'll compare your 25 earned income to 24. So that, that's how we end up taking this out. And the IRS will attempt to automatically calculate uh, the increased refunds for early filed 2023 returns. Now, this is the only one because these things tend to be retroactive. But this is the only time that Congress is uh, basically saying, IRS, go back and recompute things. To be honest, this is the only one that the IRS has the information or has any chance of having the information on to allow you to properly recompute it. So what they're saying here is they don't want people to hold up filing the return because they qualify for child tax credit, waiting for the IRS to straighten out and get things updated and be able to accept returns directly. Rather, they're saying, go ahead, file now, and the IRS will eventually send you a check, right? In addition, assuming you qualify for the increased credit. So that's an important little detail to note. It's not actually brought up in their memo, but it is in the bill. So keep an eye on that. Next up, we're going to talk about the American Innovation and Growth uh, Provision. That's another title. These are the business tax extenders Republicans wanted but they only go through 2025. 2025 is going to become the key year because all the old TCJA things go away, as does the uh, special rule for getting a credit on your you know, medical insurance, right? That the premium tax credit expansion also dies off the end of 25. So it's gonna be an interesting fight in 25 or 26 to see about extending those provisions. But 
That's a fight for another day. We're going to talk about this one right now. The first big thing a lot of people have been waiting on, we're going to go back and allowing the write-off immediately of domestic research and experimental expenditures. The full-blown amortization under 174 added by the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act will be pushed back until after 2025. Interim years are going to be covered by a new section 174 cap A, which allows for full expensing of those domestic costs, right? So the idea is we're going to allow people to fully expense those costs. And remember, it doesn't matter if you claim the research credit or not. Uh, you might still very well and probably do have at least some if you're in manufacturing for sure. And certainly if you're in software development, you do any software work either internal for internal or external use, um, you know, you probably have these costs that you were having to amortize over five years. And as you found out in 2022, the first year, that first year amortization, because you only assume a half year convention, uh, basically it was like getting one tenth of what you've been deducting previously, resulting in some rather nasty tax bills on the 22 return. Bills, which of course have already been paid now and now we're going to go back and retroactively uh, restore the 174 full expensing, meaning amended returns or would be part of this. Again, it's retroactive to years beginning after December 31st of 2021. There are some cleanup provisions to fix the accounting method fiasco that will result at this point. So we have lots of that stuff in there, right? We're going to be able to get that part done. Now, it also adds an amortization and capitalization election in addition to the pre-existing election for amortization. So there are like three different ways to elect. Uh, in essence, there will be a one-year period because these elections, if you're going to use a special amortization period, you're going to just capitalize these expenditures. These elections uh, have to be made by the due date of the return, including extensions. Obviously, we're past that date for calendar year 2022 returns. So the question would become, well, how in the world do you fix this? Well, the answer is we fix it, at least in theory, uh, by going ahead and having this special one-year period where you can amend the return, make the election, and be treated as if it was made timely with the 22 return. There's going to be a similar provision to allow you to change your computation of the research credit uh, by making the election or revoking the election to claim the reduced research credit as provided in Section 280C, uh, 280-CAP-C-C2, back on your 2022 return. If you, because you made that election based upon what was happening then with the amortization, now we're going to go back and potentially want to change that election. You will again have one year from date of enactment to make that change on the 22 return. Now, again, the date of enactment is the date that the president signs the bill. And as it stands right now, he stated he would sign this bill if passed without any changes. Uh, he's probably going to sign it even if it went through with a lot of changes. You know, I, I think there's only a few things you could poison pill it with. And I don't think anything you can poison pill it with from the president's standpoint would ever pass the Senate. So bottom line, it's, I don't think we worry about the president signing a bill. We worry about whether Congress passes a bill. That, that'll be the bigger thing. Um, we're also going to restore the pre-2023, the pre I'll get that out correctly, calculation of the adjusted taxable income for the 163J business interest amount, right? So 
Now, by default, the effective date is for years beginning after December 31st, 2023. Again, remember the key difference was we eventually changed to calculating adjusted taxable income under the original Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, that computation uh, against which you applied a percentage. And then that was the maximum business interest the business could deduct. Under the pre, you know, under the TCJ for the first few years, that was that did not include any deductions for depreciation, amortization, or you know, depreciation, amortization, or depletion. So those were out then. It did come back. So now we're doing our 22 returns, and obviously we were picking up a lower amount of ATI, which means a lower amount of interest was allowed to be deducted. Now, because of some quirks, this one has, and it's, they've done this before we played with this after the fact too. The true effective date is just for years beginning after December 31st, 2023. But what's going to end up happening here is we can elect to apply it to the prior years if we want to. So it's an elective option. The idea is the problem is a lot of partnerships are involved in ATI in ATI and 163J calculations. Those partnerships are covered by the Bipartisan Budget Act uh, methods of having to deal with any return that is submitted for revision, which means going through the administrative adjustment account methods and deciding if you're going to pay, if you're going to do a push out, or you're going to pay at the partnership level. Well, at this point, you couldn't elect to pay the partnership level because this will be a negative adjustment, presumably. So you'd have to do the push out. This will be a push out that would reduce taxes for the year in question. Let's say that, you know, that that's what we did. And the problem with reducing taxes for the year in question uh, is that, great, that creates a credit for the following year, in theory. Well, that's a couple of problems come up with that. The big one is if you end up computing a credit from, let's say, a 23 return, let's say this thing takes a while to pass, we end up filing our 23 return. We then have to go back and, oh, we didn't extend the partnership return. This gets passed after the partnership return, you know, after March 15th retroactively, which we hope that wouldn't happen, but it can. Uh, it would make it a problem then, you know, if the taxpayer, if at least some of our partners didn't have enough taxable income in 2024 to absorb the tax credit. So they're going to let you keep it, you know, don't, don't mess with those prior returns and only mess with returns going forward. So that would be how you do it. Okay. Other thing we're going to add now is hundred percent bonus depreciation will be effective all the way through the end of 2025. It had been scheduled, remember, to drop to 80% this year. So we'd have 80% bonus for, not this year, but last year, 23. So we'd go back to 100% bonus for 23. So that, that's a change that would affect the 20 returns, right? In 2026, it would still drop and it would go ahead and drop to full, all the way to 20%. We're not gonna start, you know, slowly phasing down like we originally designed to. We would just go and kind of drop off a virtual cliff. You know, we'd go from 100% deduction at the end of 25 to zero in 20, to 20, I should say, in 26. So there'd be a lot more interest at the end of 25 to make sure you got your purchases in than there would be necessarily uh, in this last year. We worried about only a 20% reduction and the amount of bonus depreciation we get, where that's probably not something we're thrilled with, but it's not as concerning as going all the way down to only 20% bonus. 
which would be the lowest bonus depreciation amount I think we would have we ever had uh, that actually would come into play if it did. And it would then drop to zero and 27. Now I should point out, uh, this would be retroactive back into 23. Obviously we probably haven't filed any 23 returns right now, but that would be something to keep in mind because you're, it's 80% bonus will not effectively be an option. So it's either 100% bonus or no bonus. And if you want no bonus, you have to opt out and on a timely filed return. So this could force amended returns. And again, the same partnership problems. So certainly don't file your partnership returns uh, until such time as, you know, file the extensions, but see if this comes out and we get the 100% bonus. Because if we do, we would much prefer not to have already filed a partnership return, or at least get us to the fact where we could go, once we're on extension, then we can do a superseding return all the way through the extended due date of, you know, uh, basically of September 15th. So it would give us time to fix things and not have to go through the AAR process, which we definitely don't want to go through if we can avoid it. So as we make this come in, we're also going to make a change to 179 expensing amounts for 2024. We're going to raise the maximum expensing amount to 1.29 million for 2024. And the phase out would be raised to begin at 3.22 million. This one's tough to get terribly excited about because we have bonus depreciation. And most things with 100% bonus depreciation, generally that's going to cover most assets that would qualify for 179. There are a few exceptions. Certain things in real estate would only be 179 options. Uh, you know, we have that if you wanted to make use of faster depreciation. Uh, it might make differences in some states. Generally, though, we prefer bonus depreciation because unlike 179, there is no taxable income limitation. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe consider that a good thing. I guess if you don't want to have a NOL carryover and you want to have a 179 carryover, I guess, yeah, on theory, that would be better because, of course, NOL carryovers would be limited to the by the 80% of taxable income. So, yeah, there may be some scenarios where you'd prefer 179, but I think for 98% of the cases, we're probably using bonus and just going with that instead of worrying about 179. At this level, but you do have you have an option for a larger number next for the 24 returns. It's not 23, this is 24. So this is the one that's not going to cause us to amend returns. I guess that's probably the good news about. It. Next up is also now the final section: tax administration and eliminating fraud. And I guess, and there are two sections in here, and they are just really not tied to each other in any way, shape, or form. This one, which is which is one that's been suggested a couple of times, but again, kind of like the Taiwan bill, there was never a vehicle to attach it to, would increase the amount of the uh, required to have been paid out prior to being required to issue a Form 1099 miscellaneous or 1099 non-employee compensation. This would be effective for payments made in 2024, and we would jump the threshold from the $600 limit we have today to a thousand dollar limit. Therefore, presumably getting rid of some 1099s that otherwise are having to be filed. So it would limit how many of those have to be filed. Uh, it would also inflation adjust this number in the future, which is a good thing, right? Again, it had been proposed, it had been bouncing around for a while, but there hadn't been a vehicle yet to attach it to. So again, this is one of those things where we have a vehicle to attach it to, so it gets attached to this. Not, not a bad change, but again, that change, 
not going to cause us to worry about amending things, and it's not going to affect the 1099 miscellaneouses or 1099 NECs. You may be looking at filing here at the last minute. So we'll, we'll get that. You know, that's not really our problem. The bigger part of this is the about the ERC changes to address fraud. That's really the key things here. Now, this is one section of the bill. You know, only one section of the bill, but it actually, you know, it covers a whole bunch of different ways of handling this. So as I said, it's kind of the inverse of what we had for the child tax credit. We end up like five different bill sections that effectively all roll into one, one thing, right? To make the changes for the child tax credit. Now we're going to have a single bill section that like spawns five or six different things, you know, all of which are really independent. Again, that in case me, primarily we had different people drafting different portions of this. And so we're pulling from different places. I wouldn't be surprised too much if a lot of the suggestion for this particular part came from Treasury because the IRS has been pushing for these sorts of changes for a while. I wouldn't be surprised to find out that the IRS was asked to draft something. You know, uh, you know what, what do you guys want? You know, what, what would you guys like to see? And then we'll consider that and this stuff all got agreed to, but we now have it. It generally applies to aid, assistance, and advice provided after March 12, 2020. That was when, you know, that's when ERC first, first applied under the COVID program. Uh, yeah, don't forget, there is actually non-COVID ERC. ERC didn't really start with COVID. It's been used before in other situations. But obviously, the COVID version was the one that got all the notice and all the TV commercials. So we're going to talk about this. Okay. It is very, 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 very... Uh, promoter unfriendly. We'll phrase it that way. Also, not terribly employer friendly if you applied for these. You want to seriously consider these provisions. A really big thing you need to worry about is yeah, if this passes, your claims for refund have to be filed with the IRS by January 31st, 2024. Raymond, when you're listening to this, it may already be too late if this bill passes for an ERTC claim to be filed. Previously, we were looking at a deadline that would occur on April 15th of this year for the 2020 claims and April 15th of next year for the 2021 claims. Uh, those deadlines will be wiped out. Every claim must be filed by the end of January if this bill passes unchanged. Might that day get pushed back since it's pretty clear the bill won't pass by then? Maybe. But then again, maybe not. It, had, it was not changed in committee. And I, in committee, it was pretty clear that obviously the Ways and Means Committee knew at that point that it was going to get there. The chair of the committee said, yeah, it'll make the House floor, we think, the week of the 29th. Well, considering that then it has to go to the Senate and the Senate has to get it on their calendar, get it done, there basically was no chance whatsoever, he's saying, of this thing becoming law by January 31st unless we just really do a lot of suspending of the rules. And so far, the House isn't doing that. So I don't know why we believe the Senate would suddenly do it on two days notice. So I, I think it's pretty clear. So I'm taking that as a warning that this date may be the date, even if they don't get this passed until sometime in February, it'll still be retroactive back to January for the last day to have filed your claim. Uh, Remember, we had something similar to that when we got well into the fourth quarter of 2021. 
when Congress retroactively removed the ERC for everybody except recovery startup businesses for the fourth quarter of 21. So it's not that unusual in this program that they're taking things away retroactively. So ju just be aware of that. And probably for the same reason that worked, the idea is, and why the courts will probably not be upset, is notice had been given by the committees that they were going to do this and this is their effective date. Because notice was given, you had a chance to act and you didn't act, right? So notice was given. Uh, you know, they could have just given notice effective on the date they made these proposals, which was back, I think around the 15th or 16th of January uh, is when we got the proposals actually out. So bottom line, I don't think it's that different. You know, I, I think, think the catch is assume the January 31st date is the date, because even if there's a way to argue in court, it should be allowed to go later. Your client probably doesn't want to be paying for to be the party to have to make that argument in court. So we'll go ahead and leave it at that. Okay, let's start talking about some of the key issues here. One of the key issues is we've got to figure out who is going to be a promoter. Because promoters are subject to some nasty penalties. Uh, if, you know, in certain, certain cases. You are a COVID ERTC promoter. There are two tests. If you meet either test, you are considered a COVID ERTC promoter. And these tests are based on a year basis. So we test each year separately to see if you're a COVID ERTC promoter. The first test says, if you charge a fee, if you charge or receive a fee for such aid, assistance, or advice, which is based on the amount of the refund or credit, a contingent fee, and more than 20% of the gross receipts for that you received was for COVID ERTC documents, and that's basically the 941X and similar documents claiming the credit, or a 941 if it was original. Then you are an ERTC, COVID ERTC promoter. Now, we're going to get to option two. But I think the way this is worded, if you charge both contingent and non-contingent fee, it would appear the way I read this, I read this thing, I'm afraid the way I think they're going to read it, is that any contingent fee charged in the year any fee that was contingent on the amount of the refund or claim will make you or pull you into this category, which is not the category you want to be in. Because if you're in this category, you just need to have one-fifth of your gross receipts for the year come from your COVID work. Okay. If you charge no contingent fees during the year, then your test is the one we find on the next slide, which in this case is going to show you that uh, you basically either your receipts were more than 50% of your income, of your gross receipts for the year. So instead of a 20% test, we have 50. Or your total COVID ERTC receipts exceed 20% of your gross receipts, and they also total more than half a million dollars. Now that does include aggregation, and there are aggregation rules they provide at this point, so related entities be pulled together. So basically, the half million dollar test is what you get, or 50% of revenue, if you're not charging contingent fees. But the way I would read right now, apparently you're charging a single contingent fee in that year. Any contingent fees charged in that year, you go to the 20% test, and you don't get the $500,000 kind of de minimis rule under it. So yeah, that's, that, that, that's the way that one would work. 
So if you're an ERTC promoter, you face some significant penalties. And that's probably the big thing to go with it. First thing is we're going to have an ERTC promoter penalty. This is a nasty penalty. We're going to take what's a penalty that already applies to people who are, you know, who are found to have aided or abetted the underpayment of taxes, right? So basically, this is one that would go against a tax advisor that you'd been involved in some program that aided or abetted the underpayment of taxes, which this is actually relatively minor, right? There are other charges you could bring, including criminal charges in the area, uh, you know, but that would be aiding and abetting tax evasion. So this is kind of the, the much lower standard of proof level of aiding or abetting underpayment of tax under section 6701 of the code. And that's going to increase from $1,000 to a way higher amount for COVID ERTC documents. Basically, it's going to become a minimum of a $10,000 uh, penalty. Um, and that's only if it's only an individual and going to be much higher otherwise. And we're going to compare that against a, a proportionate, a proportion of your fee test. So bottom line, in this case, your penalty is a greater of $200,000 or 10,000 natural person. So if you're, if you're an ERTC, a COVID ERTC promoter, and you're operating as an S corporation, we are looking at a $200,000 penalty. Anytime for any client you're found to violate, uh, you know, this understatement, aiding and abetting the understatement of tax rules. So it's a $200,000 penalty, or if greater, 75% of the income derived or two have been derived effectively by the promoter related to the COVID ERTC document advice. The way I read that is it appears their intent there with the second clause. Let's say that you told the client that, okay, we're gonna charge a 20% contingent fee. Um, we find you qualify for $3 million of employee retention credit. So we're gonna take a $600,000 you know, fee on that. Well, because you were going to be getting a $600,000 fee, whether you got it or not, you're going to pay a $450,000 penalty because that'd be 75% of your income from that advice. And it's going to be greater than, you know, the 200,000 that you would otherwise do. And by the way, if you're a natural person, only an individual, let's say a sole proprietor, yeah, that 10,000 is there. But remember, the 75 is going to apply anyway so you're probably going to be doing 75% regardless will be in your case because it's unlikely that 75% of the ERTC fee in many cases that you'd receive, you know, and we're probably going to go above 10 grand for that pretty quickly, right? That your fee probably was more than 10 grand. Most of the ERTC consultants I knew of weren't really taking on projects unless they could pay a way bigger fee, right? Than one that would be, you know, then then one that where we get ten thousand seventy five percent of that fee. So essentially, we'd be looking at a thirteen fourteen thousand dollar fee uh, would be what you could get to make the ten thousand work. Obviously, we they were charging significantly above that. So in that case, let's say for a natural person, it's just going to be seventy five percent of the income derived or to be derived would probably be the penalty. Now, generally under this section for aiding and abetting, you have to be able the IRS has to be able to show that the promoter had knowledge of the fact that the, you know, that the taxpayer didn't qualify for whatever was claimed. This sets up another provision. So 
Bestowing knowledge, how does that work? Well, this next one is really interesting in that regard. The knowledge test is deemed met if the promoter does not follow the required due diligence requirements added by the bill. Now, talk about these, but my reading of these requirements are basically, especially if you don't pass the bill until after January 31st, is the, the due diligence is going to relate to representation work. And that's, that's what gets more interesting there with representation. Okay, let's talk looking at this. So, what are those due diligence requirements? It's going to be basically similar to those required for the employee for the earned income tax credit, head of household status, child tax credit, the American Opportunity Tax Credit. Right? We're used to attaching that to the return. The actual penalty in this case is a $1,000 penalty. That's the minor penalty. Okay? That's if they get you just on the ticky-tack little thing that, oh, by the way, they come in and they examine you. You know, after having done the work, they look at your situation, they're examining you for preparer issues, and they discover you didn't fill in the form. There's $1,000. Uh, that's great. But if the IRS on examining the client, which they probably did, because that's why they're looking at you as a promoter, if on examining that client, they determined and they won and got a adjustment downward, so there was an overstatement, right? Understatement of tax. Uh, then they're going to go back and say, oh, by the way, you are deemed to have had knowledge that they didn't qualify for this because you failed to do the due diligence on your work with them for a COVID ERTC advice during the representation phase when it was going to exam or during exam, et cetera. You, you failed to do the due diligence and determine that the client didn't qualify. So that's really where they're going here is you need to fill in due diligence. I would expect the IRS to come up with some sort of due diligence form that would be similar to what we have before. So this really appears to me to be attacking the exam side of the equation. Because again, it makes no sense on filing claims because by the time this becomes law and by the time it would be effective, there won't be any claims to file. Right? The claim, the date will have passed to file claims. Now, because here's the key, it only applies to advice given after the date of enactment. And again, like I said, the odds are we're not going to have this in here. You know, we're not going to have any claims filed after the date of enactment. So this is going to have to relate to the advice given while they're on exam. And what this apparently is going to, and I'm sure a reaction is going to come from all of our ERTC mills, is they're going to pull back dramatically from being involved in giving any advice. Or if you're one of those like, you know, a lot, lot of these mills basically were marketing fronts and all they did was got, you know, get, get, get the clients in the door and then they would assign them out to a law firm they had under contract. That was done a lot of times. Uh, well, that law firm now is getting a little more worried about this because they have to clear the due diligence and show they're not knowingly now working to uh, attempt to assist the client in evading tax. Right, or sort of like, you know, an understatement of tax on the civil side, not evade, but understatement. And that could make it a lot more interesting. Um, and that that could be a real stress point too, because generally my understanding was remember, the, these people were marketing saying, We'll represent you on exam was the uh was the person up there or the you know, the 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 mill was the one saying we'll do that, that was getting clients in the door. Well, 
they may have real fun now finding finding somebody to hire to represent the client uh, who is going to be willing to go ahead and fight for the full amount they claimed. Uh, what they may find is that the only people who are willing to represent are going to look at that number and say, the, you know, these people don't qualify or we're not sure they do under due diligence. And, you know, having to do whatever the IRS comes up with here on that standpoint. So we'll take a look and see how that works. This the due diligence requirements is going to be one to watch very carefully if this becomes law, what the IRS gives us in that area, and then how it looks like it's being applied. Because as far as I can see, and I'm a bit uncomfortable with the Congress doing it this way, it does appear to be restricting the exam representation site. Okay. Other changes. They're going to be required to have disclosure of having to disclose the list of their clients in certain situations. Here's how Congress is pulling this one off. COVID assistance will be considered a listed transactions for the promoter's purposes. Now, this again takes effect as of the date we've got this, it's, you know, we're in play. This does not mean that what they did before the enactment of this bill wasn't already a listed or reportable transaction. And I want to warn you about that. It wouldn't be a listed transaction because obviously, you know, it's not in the list. However, reportable transactions are not governed by whether the IRS has identified it as such. Remember, reportable transactions are governed by certain things there, including audit protection. Um, in theory, this could be a reportable transaction. And why that should scare you, if you think about it, is if it's a reportable transaction and no disclosures have yet been filed, then yeah, the statutes don't start running. Now, how that's going to interact with the statute bill later, who knows? But that's a problem. It also creates penalties, uh, which are a pain to get rid of. So, yeah, just that, that parenthetical is important, what the law tells us about its possession part. Or actually, not even parenthetical. The law just says, the bill says, no intent to say these aren't already reportable transactions. We're going to treat it as such for the promoter's purposes, which means they have to keep a list of clients and they have to provide that list of clients if the IRS requests it, right? So they're a material advisor. That's how we're going to get them to be listing transactions or providing us with a list of these transactions, which is the bottom line problem that we have. So that list of clients made available to the IRS upon request. You know what that means. IRS examines a particular taxpayer, discovers, hey, absolute garbage work done in terms of, you know, proving they have it. They have no records to prove the facts. And by the way, I think that's a huge problem, way worse, to be totally honest, than the problem we have about whether they're taking positions that don't have support. Because the problem is, even if you said they're their position is supportable, they don't have any records to back up what they're doing quite often. It's very, very limited records involved so they can't produce any facts. And it really doesn't matter if your analysis of the law is correct if you don't have any facts, right? You have to have both facts and law, right? Both are important to win. And a lot of these, you know, mills just don't have any. Uh, and yeah, that, that, that gets messier. Um, so they come back, they say, aha, no, no, no facts were there. Hey, you. You're a COVID promoter. We find you meet the requirement. Therefore, we are going to demand that you give us a list of all of your clients that you gave COVID advice to. And of course, we know what that's going to mean. 
That's an exam list, right? That's an exam list right there. That, that's the point of this, okay? Next up, we're going to get a six-year statute of limitations for refunds. Uh, so the IRS can go back on and for any refunds issued. This is, I should say, for assessment. So this begins on the latest of the date on which the original return was filed, the standard statutory date, okay? So let's talk about the difference in those two. If you filed the 941 within, and that's the original 941, if you filed that, you know, by its normal due date, so let's say, you know, we're going to have due this week, the 941s for the fourth quarter of 2023, if that's filed by its original due date, December 31st of 23, then that's treated normally as if it's filed, which is the second bullet here, on April 15th of the year following. So that 941 you're going to file by Wednesday, you know, by Wednesday of this week, that 941 is going to be deemed filed for starting a statute for either, for either IRS to assess tax against it or for you to claim a refund against it. It's going to deem to be April 15th of 2024, the starting date. So when the first one, because again, it's going to be the latest of the three, that first date would apply if you have filed your 941 for 2020. Let's say the third quarter of 2020. You qualify for the ERTC for that quarter. You hadn't filed a 941 and you file it late. So you filed that 941 for the third quarter of 2020 and you filed it, let's say, on December 1st of 2021. Well, then December 1st of 2021 becomes the start of your six-year period, assuming that you claim the credit there. And you haven't done any amended returns since then to change the amount of that credit. If you claim the credit on the original 941 and you filed those on time back in 2020, then December 5th and April 15th of 2020, April 15th of 2021 becomes your start date for six-year statute, which would take you out to April 15th of 2027. The third category, which is probably going to apply in most cases, is the date you filed your claim for refund. So if you filed a claim for refund in 2023, then you're going to be looking at 2029 as the date on which, you know, the claim would finally, you'd finally, basically, the IRS could no longer assess tax against you. So essentially, we're taking it from a three-year statute to a six-year statute. We are adding an additional three years for the IRS to go after these. And remember, especially with getting those lists from promoters, the IRS is going to do a lot of this stuff. And let's be honest, they're going to just plow through those. And, you know, they're, they're going to start identifying things. And I expect we're also going to see a lot more. We're going to see the program. Remember, they currently have a program that come in from the cold program that lets you keep 20% of what you got and not pay any interest, right? Or no penalties. They'll expose to potential criminal prosecution, which is a huge red flag to you know, make sure that anybody considering going into that program and paying back 80% definitely needs to talk with legal counsel before they go forward with it because you're going to give IRS all that data and the IRS has no restrictions on using that against you for criminal prosecution. And I guarantee you when they go back to the promoter who you turned in, the promoter is going to start turning on the taxpayer and saying they lied to us. 
And yeah, that could go bad. So yeah, be careful there. But that program, when it ends on March 22nd, I expect we're going to see as a whole is another program startup that now may no longer let you keep the 20%, but might go ahead and waive the penalties or and maybe the interest. Right. And we're going to have different programs and they're going to get continually less taxpayer friendly as the IRS continues to ramp up and start doing exams. So that's kind of where I expect it's going to come. And again, the list of from the promoters to me is a key part of how all this runs. Find they examine a taxpayer, discover lousy job done on study. They go to the promoter. They say, "Aha, we want a list of your clients because you did a lousy job. You probably did it on everybody. Lousy job." And yeah, that's that's kind of where we end up going. Okay. Uh, the statute to claim the income tax refund for the increased wage deduction for a disallowed ERTC credit has also been extended to the same date as the date the IRS has to try to claw back the refund. Now, this is nice because we knew this was a question about, you know, do we lose this right to get that refund money back? Uh, so we make it very clear, it's extended in the same manner as the assessment date. But be careful here. It's not clear from the law, the way I read it, if you sign a agreement to extend the statute on assessment, have you also, you automatically get the extended time period on claiming the wage deduction. And I think it's potentially a major problem because here's the hitch. In many cases, the taxpayer who is who filed the ERTC claim will be something like an S corporation. The taxpayer who actually is looking for a tax refund on a deduction that they hadn't taken and now they can after the ERTC has been disallowed, they go back and deduct those wages. That taxpayer is a different entity. It's an individual, the individual shareholder. I would make very, very clear and start getting protective claims ready uh, as soon as anything showed up, if the IRS starts looking around and is working under the statute and be ready as we get close to six-year statute to make sure you put in protective claims or have the IRS at least explicitly agree to extend the statutes for those others. And we're going to do all these together. But that's going to be something to watch very carefully because, again, you want to make sure you don't screw this up. There are some arguments that might allow you to still get that refund otherwise, but I don't want to risk having to make those arguments. I much prefer being able to go in and know that I had my protective refund in place, know that I had everything ready to go, or know that I had a clear statute extension that, you know, that we're going to get this claim in and it's going to go in along with the, you know, the amounts of any exam. So we sign off on the exam. The IRS is going to have to accept the, you know, deduction changes at the same time. That'll be part of the whole deal. So we'll see how that goes. Now, again, reminder, this is not currently law. It may never become law. So don't go start doing anything aside from if you're, it's not yet January 31st, or at least the clock hadn't struck midnight January 31st, get any ERTC claims filed postmarked and in, right? Get that done. But otherwise, don't start working on this program until such time as we know something's happening. But you want to keep your eyes on this. This is one of those nasty things that at this point will probably at least drag into mid-February. Therefore, it will start overlapping as you get the heavy workloads coming in for tax season. We're not going to avoid that. We got this re these retroactive changes 
You have clients, especially who have 174 refunds that are going to be wanting you to act on those right away because they're going to want that money. So keep your eye on this thing. The timing is horrid. But come to the territory. This is not the first time Congress has pulled a stunt like this, and it will not be the last. So this has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of January the 29th, 2024. Current Federal Tax Developments are brought to you, as always, by Kaplan Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. Uh, you can email me with questions, edzollers at currentfulltaxdevelopments.com. Uh, also, I do pay attention, well, at least or I try to, th th this week with uh, you know, go going through the whole uh, you know, COVID situation. Wasn't really that, wasn't that bad, except it was exhausting, for the, especially for the first couple of days, um, which was the bigger thing involved there. So yeah, it was kind of fun. I'd avoided the whole thing until now, so I don't feel too bad about the whole thing. That's how it worked out, but yeah, I did avoid it till now. Um, and I avoided it through this year, which I really was surprised with because everybody seemed to be sick when I was traveling this year. It's like, they're all sick with traveling and I made it all the way till now, right? Without having a problem being in front of rooms of people. Uh, so I didn't feel too bad about it. I also do check in on the uh, website for the uh, New Jersey, Arizona, Minnesota, Illinois, and Washington side CPAs Connect sites, and also on Idaho's discussion board. So if you have any issues there, post there, and I may decide to reply as is. You can follow me on threads at Ed Zollers. Uh, otherwise, I will see you back here next week with whatever new is happening here in the area of current federal tax developments.